Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. My name is Rachel, and I am an honours student doing a BSc Geography and Environmental Studies. Okay, I think that um, the Black Caucus kind of organisation that allows Black voices to kind of be heard is very necessary in the time that we live in. Although we might be free, there are different struggles that we're kind of now trying to deal with. Being a Black student myself at an academic institution, you kind of constantly face battles where you're not necessarily fully grasping certain concepts because they're not necessarily familiar with your background or your way of perceiving the world. And, you know, as much as we say that race or culture is not an issue, it really does impact how we understand things in the world. So if we can have groups that kind of promote strengthening certain ideas and certain perceptions that I think maybe indigenous to black people is great, especially in the academic sphere. I mean, I guess that's why I'm probably also doing um, further postgrad stuff because I want to kind of be that voice in certain academic disciplines that you don't really necessarily get from the black side. You know, um, white students get told that carry on with your studies and whatever, we just get pulled into the workforce. You know, it's not every day that you find people that actually want to carry on these studies that are black. So if we have these communities that educate not just high school or varsity students but tell them that there's more to life than just studying and working you know understand that there are different dynamics and there are different perceptions it kind of strengthens us and provides hope for future generations as well so it's a good starting point it's great today's episode picks up on questions of transformation and decolonization and focuses on the experiences of black colleagues from the university of cape town who have recently organized into the black academic caucus The BAC aims to contribute meaningfully to a black-led transformation process at UCT. Our guest today is Dr. Shose Kasi, the chairperson of the Black Academic Caucus at UCT and a senior lecturer in psychology. Shose publishes on social psychological research into identity and difference, particularly in relation to race and gender in African contexts. Okay, a very warm hello to today's guest on our podcast, Dr. Shose Kesi, who is a senior lecturer in psychology at UCT, and who will be joining us today to talk about a number of issues related to transformation and decolonization. So very warm welcome, Shose. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. It's great to chat to you. So perhaps you could start off by telling us a bit more about the Black Academic Caucus at UCT, an organization that you, you're the current chairperson of. Mm. So when was the BAC started and, and what are its aims and what are its activities? Okay, so BAC, formally, we just had our very first AGM in April of this year. So it's now formally constituted as an entity. And we have a board of executives and we have a membership of about 120 plus black academics uh, from across the institution. Actually, it started 
much, uh, much earlier. And I would say the very beginnings of BACE was probably back in 2012. And then it's gained a little bit of momentum in 2014. There's some landmarks that are important. So the, in 2014, we um, wrote a response to our vice chancellor's uh, statement, which was suggesting that black academics are lacking in capacity. And he was kind of giving a, a reasoning as to why there are so few black academics in senior positions in the institution. And so we wrote a strong response to that, and it gathered a lot of interest across the institution. And that's where we kind of uh, started gaining more membership. And so we felt like at that point that we really needed to have a structure, and particularly an, a leadership structure, but broadly an organizational structure that highlighted the different goals that we wanted to achieve. And so we had our very first workshop that year as well. And we, we came up with a plan, which has got to do with curriculum, research, staffing, and institutional culture. And then subsequently, of course, with the student movement, that, that also helped us to mobilize uh, uh, more academics, especially, you know, with the beginnings of Roads Must Fall. There was a lot of attention then afforded to the Black Caucus and their role in that. And so it's kind of grown through these different phases. And now we have an, an established structure with a leadership and, uh, you know, various subcommittees working on different aspects of transformation and decolonization. Okay, so that's, that's quite interesting to understand that the origins of the Black Academic Caucus are actually in, in more institutional questions where you felt that it was important to have a platform to get involved in bigger questions of transformation and how it was being implemented or not implemented at UCT in particular. Yes, I think the, the one thing that that marked the beginning of BAC for me is when I arrived at UCT and the experience that I had. And I, I remember not being able to bring my children. I'm a single mother, so I, and I couldn't bring my children with me to Cape Town because there was no accommodation available. So I came and I stayed in a bed and breakfast and started my job. And then two weeks after that, I had there was a couple who arrived from the US, and this was my colleague in, in psychology. And when I got to know him a bit, he told me that actually, his experience had been completely different and he was given a house <laughs> and so and he was told that he got priority on this house because he was coming with his two dogs so that was the the beginning of uh, <laughs> my my journey at UCT and you know I went through a mediation process and mm. it was quite a traumatic experience because it meant that for me to get my family back together it took me about a year and so it was the beginning of seeking out other black academics who had similar experiences and understanding how do they cope survive resist and so it was really a networking group sharing experiences building solidarity and and just networking and finding opportunities for joint projects or supporting each other in our careers. And so that was the beginning. And then it grew into something else, which became, you know, challenging the, the institution. So could you tell us a little bit more about what some of the common experiences, either of a lack of support or of discrimination or of other problems that black academics at UCT, and I, I don't want to single UCT out because I'm sure they're shared across many other universities, not only in South Africa, 
But what were mm. some of the, the common experiences that led to this need to build up a space for solidarity and support, if you're willing to share those? Yes, yeah, certainly. What we found is that black academics are often marginalized, excluded from different processes in the institution. So, for instance, uh, we, we've had colleagues who have complained about not being promoted Quite a stark example was uh, usually, you know, when you, you get promoted from lecturer to senior lecturer, you, you need about three research outputs on average. And this particular colleague had 25 and he applied for promotion and he was denied promotion. And so there's some really blatant examples of how academics are um, discriminated against. And I think, it, it, you know, that happens in terms of research funding. So what kind of projects are prioritized, you know. Um, so, and I, so it happens at the level of institutions, you know, who is awarded, for instance, with awards of teaching excellence or other kinds of re rewards. But it also happens at the level of representation. So how are black academics represented? What is the value or recognition attached to black scholarship? And we find that often, you know, it's, it's not valued in the same way. And hence, people are being denied promotions and other forms of recognition. And this happens, you know, at different levels of the institution as well. We've had some colleagues complaining about how their applications for leave, for instance, sabbatical leave, have been denied. Um, and often on very dubious grounds. So there's, there's, there's processes that happen within departments and then there's processes that happen on an institutional or faculty level which, you know, which have excluded or marginalized black academics in, in, other, in different ways. Those are really troubling examples and I'm sure a lot of people who are listening are really concerned about that. So on the one hand, it was about creating a space for solidarity and support, but this yeah. has evolved into a, a quite a formalized organization. Where do you see the Black Academic Caucus going in terms of how it's going to interact with university management and some of those structures that up to this point have arguably been discriminatory? We were involved in a series of processes at the moment. One of the things we've been able to do is to initiate a discussion around curriculum review and we members of BAC are chairing the curriculum review task team that's been set up by the vice chancellor and then there's a number of task teams that have sprung up particularly in response to the student protests and the roads must fall protests so we have a task team on the renaming of buildings a task team on what to do with about artworks a sexual assault uh, response team and all of these are being chaired by members of the Black Caucus. So we've been able to kind of insert ourselves within the institution in, in different ways. And, and at the same time, you know, there's a balance to be struck between doing those things, participating in institutional platforms, and also being able to disrupt institutional processes through different forms of disruptions or protests. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, actually, because I think on the one hand, it's really inspiring that, you know, colleagues can hear about how coming together in forms of collective action and solidarity can really shift things in a, in a positive and progressive way. But on the other hand, yeah. are we not just getting swallowed up by the machine, you know, and, and the institutions start to, to use um, people who are very vocal on issues such as transformation in yeah. in ways that makes it seem like the institution is actually progressing when maybe that progression isn't as quick or as far as we'd like to see it going. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a key area of discussion in our organization. It's about when do we participate? When do we not participate? And the very interesting experience for us was when we were invited by the vice chancellor to participate in the transformation dialogue. And it was BAC and members of student bodies, uh, worker organizations. And, you know, we had two meetings in the past year and a half. We've had two meetings and we didn't really get anywhere. And I think it was precisely because of that because of what it was the question of are we being co-opted into a process that's going to lead to particular outcomes and then it will be easy for management to say well we agreed this is the way forward <laughs> so yeah it's a it's a really interesting question but at the same time i think for BAC you know we we're trying to build a new institution if we believe in the university as an important institution, then we need to build the institution that we want. And so that means participating in institutional structures. I think that's a really pragmatic viewpoint because, you know, we are all academics and we all ultimately do believe in the viability of the university as a public institution, as something that needs to be a part of society. So mm. it makes sense that we would have to participate in some way or another in changing it, although that does sometimes feel quite challenging, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah, and it's often, you know, the burden is often on black academics, black students to take on that responsibility of transformation. So it's, it really is, at the same time, there's not enough of us in the institution in the first place. And then those of us who are here are having to take on that extra burden. So it's, uh, it's yeah, it's a difficult question. And so one of the things that we, we want to, we've been pushing for is that, our involvement in transformation has to be recognized. It has to be recognized as something that's, you know, helps us get promoted or that's valuable to our careers and to the transformation of the institution ultimately. But it has to be something that's, that's recognized as key as part of the responsibilities of an academic. Absolutely agree. I think working on transformation should be seen as a huge contribution to academic citizenship and to what in my institution anyway, is called service. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that additional burden that gets placed on black academics, because I think many, especially people who are not from black or other cultural backgrounds who are listening may not understand what, what that burden feels like and what it looks like on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. Mm. It's so difficult to explain it. <laughs> it's really hard to explain, you know, at the same time, being at the receiving end of day-to-day -day experiences where you feel excluded and then having to pick which battles to fight and which not to because there's just too many battles. And, and at the same time, you know, wanting to contribute to existing processes of transformation. So it's, there has to be an acknowledgement that the process of transformation or decolonization has to be black-led. I, I believe that because I think that what black scholars bring to the university is a background and an experience that's new, right? So it's an experience of being oppressed or being marginalized. And so if we're thinking about what kind of psychology to teach or what kind of uh, anthropology to teach or what kind of science or economics to teach, it will be from a perspective of wanting to uplift the communities that we come from. And without the experience of those communities, then in some ways, or the connection between us and those communities, in some ways, 
there would be less of a motivation to do that. And so for me, that's the rationale behind pushing for a black-led transformation process. But of course, then it has to be recognized because it, it does involve the extra burden and energy uh, on our part. Can I pause on, on something that you, you just mentioned, which made me think, you talked about transformation and decolonization. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I feel like both of these terms have taken on a particular urgency and a particular kind of frequency, especially in the last year. Yet, I'm not sure that everyone is entirely clear on what they each mean and how they differ. So from your perspective, and from the perspective of the caucus, how do transformation and decolonization intersect? Are they separate agendas? Are they similar? Are they different? Can you shed a little bit more light for us on the terminology and and what the special meanings of each word are? I think what's interesting about the term decolonization, it kind of suggests a, a break from what Uh, universities have been doing in the past. So if we think of our university in a historical context, it's about producing knowledge, I would say, that serves the privileged in society. South Africa is such a great example because, you know, black people were excluded not only from universities, but also from certain fields of study. And so decolonization for me is about disrupting the role of the university and the types of knowledge that it produces. That would be a decolonization process. Um, if, I, if I was to illustrate, for instance, with psychology, which is my field, there's been a lot of work in psychology done around legitimizing uh, differences between races, differences between men and women. A lot of studies, experimental type of studies that have been done to kind of legitimize hierarchies between these categories of people. And so in order to make sense of psychology now, there has to be a disruption from those kinds of ideas, because otherwise we can't advance society. And decolonized psychology would be uh, something that criticizes that uh, knowledge that was produced. So it's bringing a critical perspective on what we know. But for me, then, transformation would be slightly different than about, well, what do we do with the discipline? Can it be useful? And in what ways can it be useful? And I think that's when we talk about transformation, because at some point, the decolonization process has to come to an end. It's a temporal kind of concept. It's about time. The apartheid colonization ended, and now we're going through this process. But at some point... We need to also think beyond it and think about then how do we transform our societies? How do we use the university to, to bring about something new? So I, I know I'm answering in a very conceptual way, but <laughs> it's difficult. I mean, so, you know, it's, we don't have clear answers even of what exactly decolonization means. We have often colleagues ask us from the so-called hard sciences, you know, like engineering and maths and saying, well, we don't understand what a decolonized mathematics curriculum would look like. Maths is math. (laughs) But it's about who who it's benefiting, what examples are used in the textbooks, who has access to to the course. So it's all of those questions. So for you, decolonization is a concept that links much more closely with questions of the curriculum, how it's designed, how we teach, who we choose to assign as readings, etc. Whereas transformation is a more kind of broad societal process 
that although linked is not only about the learning process, but about social justice more more broadly? Yes, I think so. I think that's correct. I think that decolonization is about disrupting the knowledge that has been produced in the past or even currently and highlighting how this type of knowledge is discriminatory or oppressive. Whereas, as you say, you know, transformation is about, well, how do we move forward from there? I also think, you know, in South Africa, transformation has a very particular set of associations. We actually explored a little bit in a, in a one of our earlier podcasts a couple of, of weeks back when we spoke to another guest, Nazima Mohammed. And on the one hand, transformation has this kind of top-down government-led legacy. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it has these kind of much more broader social justice concerns. I wonder, you know, as someone who came to South Africa from elsewhere, I recall you saying you moved here in 2012 was it yeah i started in 2011 uh, and i came from tanzania so i mean that's a really interesting comparison point you know do you find that there are similar discussions about decolonization and transformation happening in east africa as there are in southern africa or do we have a particular legacy a particular burden that is throwing up really special challenges for us at the moment i would say yes and no i think that in tanzania certainly you know after from from independence uh, there was a real drive to decolonize but I, i'm not sure that was the term that was used but it was about decolonization it was about bringing about you know uh, african forms of socialism to communities there was a ujama villageization program for example and a lot of African countries used similar frameworks after independence for developing their countries. I think they used the term development more than transformation. But it was very much focused on education. The education was always a key component, and specifically adult education was always a key component of the process of change in those countries. Uh, so I think, yes, they were similar, but I, I, don't, I wouldn't be able to say that they necessarily under the banner of a decolonization framework. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the differences might be about timing, <laughs> because South Africa is a new democracy. But I think that, you know, the the university in Africa uh, in general is whether it's South Africa or other sub-Saharan countries are facing similar problems. So what do you think South African universities can learn from colleagues and peers in other parts of the continent who've had so many more decades of time (laughs) to battle with and think through the kinds of challenges that we're facing now only 20 years into our democracy. Yes, I think there's a lot to learn. I think that we have black scholars from across the continent who have more time to, you know, become established scholars in their fields. And we can draw from that in building our curriculum here. And I think it's already started in many ways. I mean, we have a lot of black academics. In fact, even members of the Black Caucus who come from African countries. And so, and and I think that that needs to be recognized. Although I would, I would want to emphasize that our priority in the Black Caucus is uh, on Black South African academics. But I think that has to be a collaborative process. We cannot change UCT by itself. We need to build our network beyond UCT within South Africa. But I think the role of other uh, African countries and, and the kind of scholarship that they've built up already can be, can be very uh, useful. You know, one thing that I've battled with quite a bit in my career, and I also started at a South African university in 2011, like you, is that I feel that the place of black African colleagues from other African countries is not fully recognized 
in terms of the transformation project or decolonization project in South Africa. And I often feel really frustrated with the way in which some institutions don't recognize black non-South African Africans as contributing to, you know, targets for increasing representation in, in academic staff. And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that, like this particular focus that we have in higher education in South Africa about prioritizing black South Africans often at the expense of black Africans. Do you think that's something we should be challenging or is this something that, that's necessary? I think that we need to stay focused on, in terms of representation, the priority has to be on black South Africans. And I mean black in the inclusive sense. It has to be on black South Africans. Otherwise, the, the risk is that institutions can bring in black staff from across the continent and use that to boost their numbers in terms of representation in academia. And I think that is problematic. But what I do agree with is that there has to be a recognition of the input that black academics from other African countries bring. I mean, even <laughs> in some ways, you know, as a, as a non-South African uh, black academic, BAC was born. So there is a contribution that we bring. And I think it's an important one. But I also feel like the recognition has to be even at the level of government. There should be a recognition from South African government to say, you know, we welcome black academics from other African countries to help us in this process of transformation. And so that we feel like there's a space for us, basically. But that shouldn't detract from the priority, which is on black South Africans. I think you make such an important point. And when we think back to the role that neighboring and less proximate African nations played in the struggle against apartheid, there was a huge role, which which seems to have in some ways been uh, mm. forgotten when we look at just immigration policies more generally, and in the ways in which foreign African academics are sometimes treated as outsiders. I find that a little bit problematic. I kind of wish and hope for a much more inclusive idea, a more kind of pan-African idea of transformation, I suppose. Yes, yes, yes. I, I believe that too. I think that a pan-African uh, vision for transforming our institutions is very important. And I think, you know, yes, there was a lot of support from other countries in the region, but it was reciprocated in many ways. There's a reciprocal relationship between South Africa and other African countries. So, uh, and, and uh, yeah, I think a, a Pan-African vision would certainly is necessary because change is always a collective process. We cannot change by ourselves. So, What do you think is required from a kind of policy perspective, both at the level of individual institutions and even at a national level, in order to increase the number of black South African academics? in faculty and their representativeness on, on staff bodies? Yeah, that's a really tough question. <laughs> you know, we have all these employment equity uh, policies and we always have targets that are never met. And so in some ways we feel like, well, what's the point of going through this process of setting targets that we, we never meet? But I, I do think that our government needs to be more involved in what happens in universities. I know there's, a, there's that tension between universities wanting to remain independent and all this talk around academic freedom and stuff. But I think that in this process of change, 
there needs to be a much closer relationship with the ministry, for instance, and the institutions. Because otherwise we rely on leadership of our individual institutions to be responsible for that change. And if they're not accountable to anybody, then I don't see how it would happen. So um, I think that definitely there needs to be a much closer and more directive, maybe, from government. Yeah, and another thing that I feel really stands in the way of producing more black South African academics with PhDs, as as the students have shown us in the past year, is questions of funding. You know, why do really talented, brilliant young scholars who are signing up for PhDs, why do they have to pay fees? Mm. They shouldn't have to pay fees and they should be generously funded by the government so that they can finish in three years and join, you know, institutions in various capacities. Yeah, yeah. But you know, also, in addition to the funding that comes from government, there's a lot of funding we get from foundations and that kind of private funding uh, we found that the primary beneficiaries of that that money tends to be white women and so there needs to also be a a lot of um, evaluation of where that money goes and restructuring of of who gets priority on 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 those funds you mentioned earlier how you believe the project of transformation should be an inclusive one or as as inclusive as possible. And you also mentioned how it should mm-hmm. ideally be a black-led project. What advice would you have for white colleagues who are listening, who are not sure about their place in the transformation project or how to support it, how to get involved without appropriating or claiming space that they are not necessarily entitled to, what role do you think they could play in assisting and helping to further what we all hope to see happen in terms of creating a a much more representative, fair and transformed university sector? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that there needs to be a lot of self-reflection that happens amongst white academics. I often find that the first response to transformation or calls for decolonization is a defensive one. And and although I can understand it, I, I, I do understand that because it's very challenging what we're demanding. We're, we're demanding that people think about what is it they're teaching, how they're teaching it, what kind of knowledge are they producing. And so it really, it's not that it's an easy process. It's, it's, it's complex and it's quite demanding. But I think that if there was a little bit of self-reflection that happened, it opens up possibilities for getting involved. You know, there's no reason why white academics cannot teach Dean Biko and Franz Fanon. And many um, of them do, I'm sure. Yes, exactly. But many also don't. Yes, but it's, it's often people who have been privileged for a very long time do not want to give up their privilege and are comfortable in their space and suddenly it's being challenged. So, that, yeah, there's a lot of discomfort, there's a lot of defensiveness, uh, there's a lot of fear around, you know, well, you know, because you start questioning, you know, what is... What is my relevance in this institution if I'm not going to be able to continue in the same way I've been doing? <laughs> I've been working for all this time. So, yeah, it's, it's not going to be easy, but I think ultimately it is possible. Well, that's, uh, I think, some sage advice um, <laughs> for colleagues listening who might feel a bit worried about where they fit in. I think that, that call to reflect and to be thoughtful about their own position, to find ways of kind of, I think, getting out of the way when necessary 
and providing moral support and I mean I think there's there's also a lot of things that the institution can do itself mm -hmm. we, we've started that with the Black Caucus we had a curriculum workshop that was open to anybody um, in the faculty a few weeks ago and we had on the panel you know academics from in different institutions we had students coming to speak about uh, how they experienced the, the curriculum and that was really fascinating you know, they gave examples of things that are said in their textbooks, which they experience as violent. And these are things that they have to learn. And we, and so if people were keen on participating, they should actually come and join into those uh, discussions. That's great. And join in a way that's receptive, right? And that's willing to listen and willing to learn and willing perhaps to hear something that may require some action on their part. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Shose, you've done some research on how transformation is experienced by students as well. Yes. You were a co-author on a, a lovely paper that I read in preparation for our discussion <laughs> about um, how mm -hmm. black students experience discourses of race at UCT. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little more about your work in that area, how, I guess, what, what you see the links being between the work on transformation as staff members to the student experience and to even to the student movement and student politics at the moment? Yeah, it, that research project was very much motivated by the discussions around the affirmative action policy in 2012. And during that time, there was a lot of views that were expressed in the media. And that was my you know, early days at UCT, and I was quite shocked by what people were saying uh, and always linking black students to low standards. So the more black students coming in, then it means that the standards of the university are going to go down. So I wanted to find out what is the impact on students. And I engaged them in a participatory action research project. And so they spoke a lot about how they had to navigate that kind of experience. And it happens in the classrooms, in their relationships with white students, their relationships with their lecturers. So there's different spaces on a daily basis in the institution where they are reminded that, you know, they're just a bit less capable than everybody else. And when you're told that consistently, you can start to believe it. High-performing students who arrive at UCT, their performance tends to go down and a lot of them drop out. I, th I think that it's the, the culture of the institution that led to that. And in the very first project, what was interesting is that one of the participants told the story of the statue. So this was before the statue came down. And he wrote a story about how this statue represents for him how his people have been colonized. And he took the picture of the statue from below. And there were these white students standing next to the statue. And he says, those students are standing above me. Uh, on the steps as I take this picture and that's a representation of my position in the university. I have to aspire to whiteness in order to succeed. So that means I have to change my accent. I have to, you know, go for coffee. I have to do things and think in ways that are different, uh, that are white and that are also oppressive towards me. And that's what I have to do in order to, to do well here. Uh, so that was a really, um, really great example of the statue uh, in that first, very first uh, group. And then I presented my research at UCT and the vice chancellor came to that presentation. And 
What was interesting is that afterwards in the discussion, people were asking the vice chancellor, so when is the statue coming down? <laughs> and so this was way before uh, Rose must fall. And I think it was 2014, yeah, in September 2014, I think. And then subsequently, I've had other groups of students after the, the statue came down, who have also written about the statue. And the, the very latest was a student from the Trans Collective, and she's a female trans student, and she took a picture of herself uh, sitting on the plinth where the statue was. And she says, she describes this as, you know, this is the idea of a decolonized university. This is liberation. When you see a trans, queer, poor black woman sitting where a colonialist once sat. So that was a really powerful kind of narrative that happened in my project at the same time as what was going on in the in the Rose Musfor movement. That is very powerful, those images and those narratives. I think they just really highlight that at the end of the day, as academics, our task is to create an enabling environment for students, for all students, to reach their full potential, to feel safe, to feel intellectually able to grow and, and develop and contribute to society in their own ways. Yeah, I think that now there's no turning back, you know. <laughs> they have spoken, we have spoken. I think uh, when they sit in their classrooms and they have an experience that they think is violent or what is being taught to them is violent, they're going to speak out. And I think that can only be, um, that's only a positive thing. Yeah, I think it's really important that students have the opportunity to speak back in class and to kind of challenge their, their lecturers and the curriculum if they feel that 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 needs to happen. But hopefully we'll evolve to a place where that isn't happening because the curriculum itself is fully serving the needs um, and the positionalities of all students rather than just a historically privileged group. One of the stories I always tell or that always um, I'm always reminded of is how students talk about going back home during VAC and being in a, in a space where they don't fit in anymore. And their friends say to them, you know, you've changed, you don't speak like us anymore. And so it, it makes you think about, well, what is it that we're doing to our students that makes them become removed from the places they come from? And is that what we want? And one student told me, you know, I don't want to go back to my home. When I finish my degree, I do want to go and work in the community somewhere, but it won't be in my home. Because in my home, they say, you know, they, she's been made to feel like she doesn't belong anymore because she's changed. They perceive it as her having changed in a way uh, where she thinks she's superior. So if that's what we're teaching our students to be, then there's a real problem. Well, on the one hand, there is this kind of inherent elitism in the idea of university, right? I mean, people from working class backgrounds from all ethnic positions may have that experience going back to a small hometown and people saying, oh, I can't relate to you anymore. You don't speak like us. You're acting all smart. But on the other hand, I think you're really, you're saying something really important in terms of how is the education that we're providing going to be socially relevant to all, not just to the middle classes and to neoliberal culture and to business, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the, the key point that you raise about elitism is something that we need to confront. It, it, becoming conscious does not need to equate to being elitist. <laughs> and I think there's lots of ways of actually challenging that. 
yeah, it's it's a it's a real it's a really important question for universities to address. Well, it's been a really kind of wide ranging conversation. <laughs> Is there anything that you really wanted to say that I didn't um, ask you about or give you a chance to to bring up? Yeah, I suppose one of the things that we're not very good at as black academics is to actually show what what it is that we do <laughs> you know often we're criticized by students for for not doing enough to change the institution but I, I think a lot of the things that we do do it's kind of in the background in boardrooms and that kind of change so and I think we're, we're not very good at writing and publishing and being public intellectuals and sharing our experiences so I think that one of the things I would like BAC to do better is to get members to you know write and 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 talk uh, and be involved in public spaces uh, because I think it's important for the students to see and for people, uh, you know, the broader university community to see. But I think it's also important to give credit to where credit is due. And I think, you know, a lot of the students who are part of the Rose Must Fall movement or other movements that have developed have been mentored by black academics. We, we teach critical theory in our classes and you know, we spend a lot of time uh, in discussions and in research projects with them. And so often we, we get erased from the narrative. Uh, so I'm, 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 I have high hopes that the AC is going to change all of that. <laughs> mm, I think based on the work you've, you've all done just the past year, that's already... Uh, the case. I think yourself and colleagues in the BAC have written some really important opinion pieces that have been published, right, on, in places like the Daily Maverick. Yes, we have a blog on Thought Leader. Yes, that's what I was looking at. Yeah. So we'll include some of those links on, on our episode notes. But yeah, I think those are really important points that you make. And it's really important that there's a growing visibility of of intellectual arguments and debates coming from black colleagues so that they can kind of take their rightful place, like you say, in leading, leading these issues forward and, and helping to, to change things for the better. Yeah, thank you. A huge thank you to Dr. Shose Kasi for sharing her thoughts with us today. I think she's made some really important points about what transformation and decolonization mean in today's university. She's also provided some workable approaches to achieving change. It's inspiring to see colleagues at UCT coming together in collective structures in order to support one another and work towards a more fair institution and a better society, and we wish them all the best. If you enjoyed today's episode, you might also enjoy episode 8, where we speak to Nazima Mohammed. What are your thoughts on how to achieve transformation in your university? We welcome your comments on our website and to our email address. My name is Suapiwa Matubela and I'm studying honours in international relations. I think that black people more especially or previously disadvantaged people in South Africa and I'd group black people and colored people in, the, in this category because I think that Indians also have the means to come to university. But those two sort of racial groups have very big problems coming to varsity. I mean, many of them cannot afford to be within the space. Curriculum in universities as well just does not incentivize uh, African academics, more especially here at Fitz University. I don't think that there has been enough that has been done for us to sort of 
have pride in studying sort of African politics, African international relations, even African economics. Um, um, the, the only department that I'd say, and it is forced to, is law because you can't really study law of another country. So they've sort of been forced to sort of do um, certain things uh, African-based. But in terms of us, you only start doing things African-based when you get to honors level or master's level where you can sort of start choosing your own question. Um, other than that, I don't think that more especially for undergraduates, that's the um, space has been decolonized. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungile Mbenyane. Thanks to Dr. Shose, Cassie, Rachel and Siwa for their time, as well as David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles. 